Welcome to the first of our What Explain Halloween episodes for this year. I wanted to try something a little different, so I'm going to start this episode with a story instead. Something fitting for the season. Please enjoy. Victoria Delilah Webster, age five and a half, knew many things, and one of those things was that something was wrong. Firstly, and most importantly, was that she was in her Sunday best clothes, which were a very itchy white dress, black shoes, and long stockings. And it was only Wednesday. This was not a good situation, as she hated these clothes with an undying passion unexpected for one of only five and a half years. The second was that her father had barely spoken a word for the past two days. The house was usually ringing with his laughter and stories as he entertained friends and work colleagues in the evenings. But he had barely spoken at all, aside from a hushed conversation with her mother, which ended the minute Victoria walked into the room looking for her lost doll. The third was that her mother hadn't stopped crying for about that same amount of time, sometimes as a loud wail, other times a quietly stifled sob, but her mother had rarely left the bedroom. Victoria could still hear her, though, even when her mother thought she was being quiet. Another odd thing for Victoria was that her parents had moved her into their bedroom for the last week. Her younger sister Adeline had seemed quite ill at the time, and Victoria wanted to see if she could take care of her like a nurse would. She was her sister after all, and they did share a bedroom. Her parents tolerated this until a week ago, when Victoria dabbed Adeline's mouth with a handkerchief after a particularly harsh bout of coughing and came back with blood on the kerchief. Dr. Long was called in quickly after that, and Victoria was told that she would be sleeping in her parents' room for now, and on no account was she to see Adeline anymore, at least until she got better. There was some mention of consumption and how it could be contagious. Her parents did have a more comfortable bed, but she missed her old room, and she missed her sister. The most worrying thing was that she hadn't seen hide nor hair of her sister either. The two were usually inseparable and despite the very limited effort of her parents trying to make it seem like everything was all right, Victoria knew something had happened. When she first asked, her mother started a fresh fit of wailing, and her father quickly ushered her into the drawing room and told her that for now, she shouldn't ask about her sister, as it would make her mother cry. Being the dutiful daughter, Victoria hid her confusion and nodded. This lasted until Wednesday, when her father briefly appeared and told her to put on her church clothes, as they were expecting a guest. Victoria began to object, but the look in her father's eyes stopped her short. She nodded again and trudged to her parents' room, where her dress, stockings, and shoes were all laid out. She stomped back down the stairs, making as much of a ruckus as possible, but neither of her parents seemed to pay attention, so she went back to the drawing room to play with her dolls. There was a quiet knock, and her father strode towards the front door, dressed in his black suit, opening it quickly enough that the door slammed into the wall. Victoria snuck a peek around the corner of the drawing room to see who this visitor was that involved her getting dressed in this manner. The visitor in question was a short man with a bristly brown mustache that seemed to be overwhelmed with a large number of boxes and what looked like enough spindly wooden legs to have created a spider, should that be what he wanted. The man gave up on trying to organize the mess, gently laid it on the front step, and extended his hand towards her father. Walter Jameson, sir. Pleasure to make your acquaintance. 
Her father shook the hand in return. Andrew Webster, pleasure as well. Walter entered the house, removing his hat and casting his eyes about the area. So where would you like me to- Adeline is upstairs. Andrew cut him off. Feel free to make whatever arrangements and adjustments you need to the room, and let us know when you're ready. Walter nodded. Does the room have any windows that could be opened? He asked. Yes, one, Andrew replied. It has been for the last two days. Excellent thinking. It does help make the process quicker and more tolerable for all involved. I'll bring my equipment upstairs and should be ready shortly. Of course, you are more than welcome to enter and exit the room as you please while I set up. We'll be downstairs in the drawing room, Andrew interrupted. Please let us know when you need us, but we'll be downstairs. Walter acquiesced with a bow of his head and began the process of moving his equipment upstairs. He had many heavy boxes and the wooden legs that seemed to be a stand of some sort. While Walter went back and forth, up and down the stairs, sweating under the weight of those boxes, Victoria kept thinking of that one phrase her father said to the mustached stranger. Adeline is upstairs. How could she not have seen her sister? She hadn't heard from her ever since the doctor came in, and her parents refused to talk about her, but she was upstairs this entire time? While Victoria was wondering about what exactly her parents were keeping from her, her mother walked into the room, wearing a black dress with a hat that Victoria had never seen her mother wear before. Underneath the brim of the hat, she could see her mother's eyes still rimmed red from crying, but her face was dry and put together and her jaw clenched under the effort of trying to keep it that way. Rose, please, you should be sitting. Andrew sat up at once and offered the chaise to Victoria's mother, which she took gratefully, collapsing into the cushions. Thus began one of the longest silences of Victoria's short life, her mother sitting like a puppet with her strings cut on the chaise, while her father hovered in the corner with an uncertainty that Victoria had never seen in the usually confident and bold man. As the silence stretched on, Andrew excused himself and went into the kitchen. Victoria heard the clinking of glasses and the pouring of liquid, and soon her father returned carrying two classes of a brown liquid that Victoria knew was whiskey, if only because her father yelled at her two years ago for knocking over a bottle of it. Wordlessly, he handed one of the glasses to her mother, which was just the latest in what was turning into a day of astonishments for Victoria. She had never seen her mother drink before, just seen her tut at her father when he came home on a Friday a bit later and a bit jollier than usual, muttering that he smelled like a distillery. Her mother looked up at the glass in his extended hand, grabbed it, and downed the alcohol in one swift movement. Both Victoria and her father stared agape at her mother as she slowly lowered the glass, meeting the both of their eyes for the first time that day. It was as if a dam broke somewhere within her as sobs began to rack her slight frame and the glass fell to the floor, shattering on the ground. Her father cursed and went to find something to pick up the glass with, but Victoria stood paralyzed. She wanted to comfort her mother, but didn't know what to do, or even where to begin. There was a slight cough from outside the room. Her mother stifled her sobs and looked up to see Walter, standing on the stairwell with an apologetic look on his face. The room is ready upstairs whenever you are he blurted before ducking back upstairs. Andrew came back into the drawing room, broom and dustpan in hand. 
After some half-hearted attempts to try and get all of the pieces, he settled for just getting the largest ones and gently escorting Rose, still sobbing, around the area. Andrew put his arm around Rose and extended his other hand towards Victoria. It's time to see your sister, he said, with the faintest hint of a quiver in his voice. Victoria's face lit up. After all this time, she would finally be able to see Adeline. She darted around her father and bolted up the stairs, her church shoes clumping on the wood as she ran. Just as she was about to reach her and Adeline's bedroom, a pinstripe-suited arm blocked her path. Let's wait for your parents now, shall we? Walter asked, a brave attempt at a smile on his face. Why? Victoria pouted. I haven't seen her in two days. I haven't been allowed in our room, and I want to see Adeline now. That last word hit a volume that hadn't been heard in the house since Adeline had colic three years ago, and Walter stood with his jaw agape, seemingly at the force of Victoria's yell. At that moment, her parents made their way up the stairs, and Walter leaned towards them. You mean she doesn't? No. No, she does not, Andrew replied, looking directly into the man's eyes. Walter's mouth opened and then closed again. In my experience, I find it usually helps if they know. This is my family and I will deal with it as I see fit. Am I understood? The mustache beneath Walter's nose seemed to twitch. Then he pursed his lips disapprovingly. All right then, shall we get started? Andrew nodded and Walter opened the door to the bedroom. The first thing Victoria noticed was Adeline sitting in the bedroom chair facing the door. Victoria smiled and ran forward a few steps to greet her sister, but the words died in her mouth when she got closer. Adeline was sitting, but ramrod straight in a way that the normally squirrely Adeline would never. Her feet were hanging limply off the chair, dangling a precarious few inches off the ground. She was also in her Sunday best, albeit very clumsily put on, and with what looked like a shawl put over the upper part of her torso. Her mother started crying again at the sight of Adeline, a fresh wave, louder and more guttural than before. The smell of rotting meat and decay filled the room, only somewhat minimized by the open window. However, the open window had brought bugs, which buzzed around the room in general, and Adeline in particular, orbiting her head like an obscene halo. Walter cleared his throat. He was standing beside what looked like a massive box with a circular glass lens held up by the wooden legs. I'd like to start with the photograph of the two girls, and then we can move on to the family portrait. Her father nodded and gestured towards Victoria to go towards Adeline. Victoria shook her head and clung to her father's leg. Whatever that was over there, that was no longer her sister, and she didn't want to go anywhere near it. Victoria Delilah Webster, you will go over there, or by all the saints in heaven, I will make you. This came not from her father, but her mother, and the sheer force of which the words left her mouth was the thing that unglued Victoria from her father's leg and sent her, shaking, over towards Adeline, sitting very still in the chair. Standing next to the chair, Victoria was able to look behind it and see the rope holding her sister up and clumsily covered by the shawl. 
The smell was almost unbearable, as Victoria tried to hold her breath and imagine that she was anywhere else but there, as the flies began moving towards her from around Adeline's head. Now, Victoria, please move towards Adeline, and whatever you do, do not move afterwards. This came from Walter, now a disembodied voice behind the box. There was a sound of a wood panel sliding open with a small click. Stay still until I tell you, otherwise the picture will be ruined. Victoria stood stock still, staring straight ahead and trying not to think about the thing in the chair beside her, the thing that was once her sister, but now seemed to only be her earthly remains. Then something impossible seemed to happen. Victoria thought that even though she was tied to the chair, even though her spirit left her body, she thought that out of the corner of her eye, she saw Adeline's head begin to loll towards her. The buzzing of the flies seemed to get louder as slowly, inexorably, the head began to move towards the still-living Webster sibling, the eyes blankly staring ahead, a portal towards wherever one goes when they die. There was another click as the wood panel on the camera slammed shut and Walter leaned out from behind the box. That was fantastic, Victoria. Now if the parrots could step in as well. Victoria took a quick look towards the thing in the chair. It hadn't moved. It couldn't have moved. Nobody else had seemed to have seen it. Otherwise they would have mentioned it. Wouldn't they? Her mother and father shuffled to both sides of Victoria and the thing that once was Adeline. Andrew leaned on the chair and Victoria felt like she needed to scream a warning to her father to get away, to take everyone away from that thing that wore the face of her sister. But her mother's fingers dug firmly into her shoulder, and Victoria lapsed into silence. Again, the shutter clicked open, and that eternity of stillness started again, where her mother, her father, and Victoria all stood still and stared straight ahead. But for the second time, Victoria heard the rustling from the chair, saw movement out of the corner of her eye, and it took all of her five-and-a-half-year-old courage not to scream. The buzzing of the flies reached a fever pitch as she silently prayed to God that the shutter would close soon and she could leave and hide and stay away from whatever thing had taken over her room and her sister. She promised to be good, to donate part of her allowance to the church, and to always pay attention during the pastor's sermon, if she could just get out of that room. The head seemed to be moving ever towards her, and Victoria thought she could almost hear the creaking sound of the vertebra in Adeline's neck as they moved for the first time in days, trying to turn and see her sister. Finally, Walter leaned out from behind the box. Okay, that picture's done. Is there any more that... He was cut off this time by Victoria, who ran screaming from the bedroom and all the way to the drawing room, where she hid behind the shades, rocking back and forth and crying inconsolably. The following days were a blur to Victoria. There were many people in black that came by the house, and then by the church, where the service for Adeline was held. They all muttered their condolences that consumption was a vile thing to take someone so young that there was nothing their parents could have done, and that Adeline was with the Lord now. 
Her parents accepted these well wishes with as much grace as they could, but they also had another worry. Ever since the pictures had come back, Victoria had been different. Victoria was the one who took the package sent from the photographer, opened it without permission, and then screened and destroyed one of the pictures, the one with the whole family. She still refused to go back into the bedroom, saying that she was hearing buzzing everywhere, and she seemed to have nightmares that woke her screaming every night. Her parents were at their wit's end. They had no idea what could have caused this change. But they hadn't seen what Victoria did in the second picture, the one with the whole family. There was the father and the mother, dressed in their Sunday best, staring solemnly ahead. There was Victoria, with her dress slightly rumpled, desperately trying not to look down at the chair that was the centerpiece of the photo. And finally, there was Adeline, torso tied to the chair, arms lying limp, but neck turned 90 degrees, staring directly at Victoria, as if she was trying to reach her. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is what? Explain. Well, what sounds a lot like a horror story was actually quite a common occurrence, minus the inexplicably moving deceased, in the time when photography was in its infancy, and there were very few ways on how to memorialize how someone actually looked. An artist could be commissioned, but that was a very expensive option that was far out of reach for most families. Also, often by the time a portrait would be needed, it would be difficult to find an artist that would come to the house and would be willing to spend hours at a time drawing an accurate representation in the same room as a dead person. A memento mori picture was often the only way grieving relatives could have an accurate reminder of what the deceased looked like. Families like the Websters were commonplace for the time, as they wanted to remember their family as it was, before the passing of the family member in question. The idea of memento mori, meaning remember you must die, in Latin, was much older than photography. In fact, it dated back thousands of years, and originated as less of a reminder of one specific person who had died, and more as an inevitable warning that death would come for us all. With an average life expectancy at the time of about 30 years, that was a good deal more common in certain philosophical circles, especially in times of hardship. What some people took out of that philosophy widely varied. It was often used by early Christians and ascetics as, if your life is difficult, you shall find your reward in heaven and encouraged abstaining from pleasures of the flesh or what would be considered immoral acts or activities. They concluded that by living your life in this pious manner, you would receive eternal reward in the afterlife. Others took a more secular approach and acknowledged that since death would be coming for them eventually, they should live life to the fullest, indulging in the more hedonistic pleasures of life. In the time of the Black Plague, people took towards the philosophy of Memento Mori to steal themselves for what might inevitably come for them and their loved ones. Many at the time believed that their life on earth was destined to be a hard and cruel one, with death being the release into a better reward after. This was the way of many of rationalizing the suffering that they were forced to bear. As a result, these people were encouraged to try and live blameless lives in the hope of ensuring an eternal reward after death. To some, death was not something to be feared, but simply to be accepted as a movement into a hopefully better reward if one behaved morally on earth. 
However, if one behaved in an immoral or evil manner, they were destined for eternal damnation. This philosophy of memento mori was even, and sometimes especially, prevalent among the upper classes of the 15th to 17th century in Europe. To keep the possibility and idea of death prominently in mind, and simultaneously flaunt their wealth, specialized memento mori jewelry was created for these wealthier individuals. Often there were skulls, wilted flowers, and other similar motifs involved, but one commonality was that there were always engravings of text mentioning death and mortality, often in the context of religion. This reminded them to live piously, for their reward, or punishment, could happen at any time when they passed on. Some pieces had the engravings put on the front or outside, but others had the text hidden only to be viewed by the owner in private. A similar form of jewelry was known as the mourning ring, which was often a plain band engraved simply with some reference to the deceased person. Amounts of money were sometimes left in wills specifically for the creation of said rings, with a list of people that the rings should go to and what should be engraved on them. As you might imagine, this was mostly the realm of wealthier families and individuals. In the mid-1600s, it became more fashionable to meld the idea of mourning rings with the memento mori jewelry. Often the hair of the deceased, as well as the initials and date of death, and skull and coffin imagery were worked into the piece as a constant reminder of their passing. Pieces that were made in the 1700s, by comparison, made the death motifs less present and the name of the deceased more prominent, as the jewelry became less about the inevitability of death and more about remembering the person who had passed. This fashion continued well into the 18th and 19th century, and remained the realm of the wealthy until the invention of photography, when all of a sudden, memorializing someone became more affordable than having jewelry commissioned and created. If there were any photographs taken in the 1850s to the 1880s, they were done by professional photographers, just due to the sheer amount of equipment it took to make sure that the negatives would be done properly. The most commonly used technique at the time was known as the wet plate collodion method and required the use of specially treated glass covered in collodion and silver nitrate, as well as the specific camera that would be needed to expose the glass for several seconds to create the photographic negative. That negative would then be taken to a dark room where it would be developed and covered in varnish to fix the image in place. All of this required the use of very expensive and very toxic chemicals, and rarely was photography done outside of a studio using that method. Action photography of the kind we are used to today would not be possible, as the shutter would need to be opened for several seconds, and if the subject moved, it would result in a blurry image. Memento Mori pictures were an exception to the studio rule as the idea of moving the deceased to a photography studio would both be a great difficulty to the family and, one would argue, that the photographer's living clients would be somewhat put off by seeing a dead body being carried out of the studio before their session. As a result, photographers often made house calls for photos of this sort, which involved bringing the cameras, multiple treated glass plates that needed to be covered at all times, and potentially some additional chemicals in case more plates were needed. Before the Kodak company invented a more affordable camera in the 1880s, photography was the realm of professionals or the wealthy. 
The deceased in the pictures were sometimes an older relative or a family member, but often, especially in times when about one-third of children never made it beyond two years old, it was the youngest of the children who were to be memorialized. Often, it was the grieving parents who ended up paying the photographer extra to come out from their studio and take the pictures. But sometimes, a collection was taken up from the neighbors or extended family in the area to help pay for that additional cost. The parents and the photographer wanted the deceased to be as lifelike as possible, so time was of the essence. The other children, if there were any, would often be dressed up in their finest clothes for one final family portrait of a sort, so the grieving family could have a final remembrance of the child or family member that they lost. Depending on the age of the children, they would either fight tooth and nail or just accept the situation and stand for the prerequisite 7 to 10 seconds in the presence of their deceased sibling while the picture was taken. While photography was still in its infancy, this would often be the only photos that a family had of their living family members, let alone the deceased, hence the urgency. This practice slowly became less common with the creation of the Kodak camera, which helped make cameras more affordable for many families. This meant that more photos were taken of family members while they were alive and resorting to a final picture after they had passed on was no longer necessary. It may seem an absolutely ghoulish practice to us today to gather around a dead person to take a final photo or even pose with that dead person. But to those people over a hundred years ago, this was their only way to remember the parents, partners, or even children who had passed on before them. There was no photo album of previous memories, or old baby clothes, or a wide variety of documentation that proved that this person was here. Sometimes it was just that photo, that one last thing that was able to be created, that showed the last time the family was together, that would prove beyond a doubt that this person lived. This person existed. This person was loved. These grieving family members did not want this person to be forgotten, so they memorialized them in what way that they could. And while it might remain horrifying to us today, hopefully it brought their family some measure of comfort. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you in a week with the second of our Halloween episodes. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch, who informs me that eating my Halloween collection of coffee crisp should be done after recording not during, and especially not while talking. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at whatexplainpod and on our Facebook page as What Explain Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the show already. I really appreciate it. Word of mouth is also immensely helpful. So if you have a friend, family member, or person waiting in line in front of you that you think may like the show, please let them know. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all in one week for the second of our two Halloween episodes called There's Always Room for One More.